Welcome to the T's and C's. Tisa and Chantel. Also known as the Terms and Conditions. Welcome to episode two. Surviving Society presents the reflection with Tiso and Chantel, part Yo. of the Terms and Conditions, T's and C's. We are excited today to be joined by Dr. Yusuf also known as Dr. Yusuf Bakali, who is Surviving Society alumni and one of our friends. Hi, Yusuf. Oh, you look good, man. <laughs> How are we doing? Um, Lockdown well, South has got you. Is this day three? Is this, no, not day three. It's not fucking day three. Week three of lockdown. Yeah. Week I two. It, I think it's week three. I think so. I'm not too sure. It doesn't matter, does it? It's all, we're all, it all merges into one now. First week. Today. I don't even, some days I don't even know what day it is, bro. Yeah. Just like, what day is today? One of the things that we spoke about last week was conspiracies. And Tiso was telling me about the 5G conspiracy, which since you've told me about it, T, I'm seeing it everywhere. Right. The, the problem I have, right, is one of my pals, now this is, he's a big dude, right? I'm, he's older than me, right? So man, he's in his 50s, right? So I'm thinking man should know better. So he starts sending me all this stuff about 5G this, 5G that. So I said, prove it. Now his, his proof was Facebook posts. Then he sent me a video of some boy walking around with his friend on phone on WhatsApp. I'm like, that's actually not proof. That's just someone's opinion. So we got into this whole debate of what things are. So I said, you actually need to read reports. So I said, what do you know about the... Radio waves, nothing. What do you know about 5G infrastructure? Nothing. I said, do you even know what the G stands for in 5G? No, he didn't. So I said, so... What is that for? Generation. Yeah. So this is the fifth <laughs> generation, right? So I'm like, so you're waxing lyrical about something you know nothing about. And he's like, but no, no, T, you should feel it. I'm like, bro, I said, if you're going to talk to me, use evidence. Otherwise, that's just your belief. And you can believe what you want, but... As I was talking to them, so I got thinking, what what do people know about 5G? Now, the reason why there's so many masts being built is because 5G needs more bases because it's the the waves are quite they're shorter, so the weather can stop them getting to your phone or your hand or being indoors. So you need more masts, but also 5G is more expensive. So for the European Union, it's going to cost 500 billion just to get 5G started, right? Then on top of that, they see it as a long run thing. So China, it's going to take them another 10 years to get to where they want to be. So everyone's paying catch up. So it's a crazy industry, but I, I accused my friend of being Eurocentric. Because, what does that mean, T? So I said, he's just focused on him being, like look, looking, at, looking at the world from a European point of view. Now he would say he wouldn't be because he's, I guess, a black guy who is, I guess in the common terms, woke. And he feels he's in touch with Egypt and all that kind of nonsense, right? So I said to him, have you ever thought about what it means if you took away 5G for Africa? What does 5G mean for Africa? And he goes, I've never really thought about that this way. I said, so 5G means increased speeds, less latency. So you do things straight away. So I said, it'll help them with their microtransactions and all that kind of stuff. So I said, you're denying someone's chance to, to get ahead. You're just thinking about yourself. And he's like, I never thought of it that way. I said, well, that's because you're Eurocentric, because you believe, even though you believe all these conspiracy theories, you're centering it on yourself. 
and in Europe. He wasn't happy with me. And just to be clear, the conspiracy theories come from the fact that people are saying that 5G is somehow linked to COVID-19. Do you know what it is, right? It spins out of a bigger thing. Initially, it starts off with 5G and radiation, right? Now, there is, there is literature on that, right? But the World Health Organization says at the moment, there's no clear evidence that it will give you things because 5G itself doesn't give you radiation. It's because it's a combination of focused waves that potentially can make you sick, potentially. But there's no evidence for that just yet. What do you think of that, Yusuf? I don't know. I've seen it around, so I ain't going to lie. <laughs> I don't know the science. I think what T's saying is, is right, really. And it's to be, there's like a wider kind of trend of like lifestyle and kind of a self-diagnostic culture. People talking about they can cure cancer or people talking about, you know, I'm not obviously saying it specifically. A lot of it's kind of connected to like uh, eating food choices and things like that. So there's a lot of that kind of stuff about, which isn't really backed. And I'm not really a science science done in it. I'm not like, oh, the science has to say, but it's not really, there's not really evidence. So it's hard to really say what, what the kind of basis of this is. And a lot of it is to do with either like, like making money out of people, like exploiting people's like business securities to make money, or alternatively pushing a kind of narrative or a meta-narrative that they want to push. Who, who's talking about the conspiracies, what, where it's coming from? And it tends to come from marginalised people, right? So people who have no, no say in something. So they feel things are afoot, but they have no control over. And so you fill in that gap with myth. Do people still talk about um, Freemasons and what's the other one? Illuminati, is that still Yeah, yeah, yeah. Illuminati and Freemasons. Yeah, there's power uh, acting on them, isn't it? So it's yeah. someone acting on them. I've, I've had experiences like that. Like been with a man them, and they've been talking about you know, bro. Like it's it's people in suits in rooms that make decisions about the thing, you know. It's like it's like yeah, it sound like Parliament, fam. Yeah, like Parliament. like I think that sometimes I think there's a sense that things are wrong, and people look for explanations that can resonate or can hold traction. And sometimes I suppose necessarily the the real ones, number one, require. I'm not necessarily real because I think a lot of our explanations are also social constructions. Yeah. I think they're ones that can resonate or hold some kind of traction with the audience or the wider public. And 5G is something that's probably in the public consciousness. Well, the reason why 5G has been so promoted at the moment is because the networks need to get buy-in from governments at the moment because they need to convince them, because it's so expensive, that there is a, a, a tangible and economic benefit, right? So they've tried, they've set up the kind of narrative, that's why it's everywhere, that if you don't have it, nations are falling behind. So there's not even a race because it, it's not like that. Like, for example, Europe is well-placed with 5G because we can we can make it and we also and we also consume it. So Ericsson, for example, just had the AGM last yesterday, last night. So, so the, the annual general meeting of its shareholders, right? So they're well-placed to capitalise on this thing. And that's what the shareholders, that's what the uh, CEO said to the shareholders. So Europe's well-placed for 5G. So, but they want to sell you Ericsson rather than Huawei. That's why there's this whole kind of tussle between them in terms of I infrastructure. Think, I think it's interesting, like, thinking about where conspiracies come from, particularly in moments when um, governments aren't being truthful, transparent or honest with that what's happening. It feels like, like we were talking about last week, there's just been an influx of 
people that I ne- wouldn't necessarily see this sort of thing coming from connecting 5G to COVID-19 because there's so little information and direction about where we're going to be every day, let alone in the next month. So people need, like, people attach themselves to these sorts of things, particularly in times like this where there's this much uncertainty. And when you've got that such little control over your life anyway... But you see, what's interesting, I take you and you're following your point, Chantel, was this COVID-19 is an existential threat, right? So it's coming for everyone. Now, that same narrative applied during Brexit. Now, people were, the same people were not jumping conspiracy theories, they were just believing those leaders. What they said was the truth, right? Tim Martin from Weatherspoons, he spoke a lot of shit that was clearly untrue, right? About Brexit, but he was pushing his own agenda, but people believed it because they wanted to believe him. And now this existential threat's come and he's talking the same shit. No one wants to believe him because he can see he's an arsehole. But he always was that arsehole. What he was saying two months ago is what he's saying now. I want to make money above everything else. That was his bottom line. And that, but after Brexit, he made, like I said before, he made 44 million after the Conservative election. Just gone. And he was always about money. But people were willing to believe him over identity. But now it's an existential threat and it's coming for everyone. People can see him for what the arsehole that he is. A money grabber, a capitalist, pure and simple. And they closed Weatherspoons now. It must have got locked down, didn't it? Because he didn't want to yeah. close that whole thing. Yeah. He's like, I'm not closing. But it's like, but they closed it. It must be now, isn't it? Yeah, no, it's closed. closed. But he's refu- he, he was refusing to pay wages because he's saying, Boris Johnson, I'm going to lose money. But he goes, now you're going to pay up to 80%. That's fine. Before he, before he said that, he said, also, um, I'm glad you can go work in Tesco's. He, listen, but he's he's a, he's he's a pure capitalist. He just wants to make money. And I get that, right? I think one of the things that has been really interesting in our conversations, T, and if if you know me and T, you know we talk about these philosophical and historical things always on sort of like a daily basis. But the links that you've been making to the Roman Empire and how that sort of correlates with what's happening with COVID-19 Listeners, stay with us. It will make sense. <laughs> oh, like, I, I guess the chat I've been having with Chantel and stuff is basically it's about the decadence of the West, right? So when the Western Roman em- Empire collapsed in 476 AD, they didn't know it was collapsing. They thought they were living in the good times, like we are, but they didn't see what was happening all around them. So when crisis came in that time or in the Republic, they would give all their power to one person. And in this case, like we're doing now, we gave all our power in a time of crisis to Boris Johnson. But if you know your own history, when they gave that power to that person, it was either a Sulla or Julius Caesar, things didn't go too well for the, for the Roman Empire, well, Roman Republic at the time, sorry. And the question is, when is Boris Johnson going to give this power back? He has a lot of power and it's been given to him. So Labour Party have been making moves to try and check that power, to limit it. But... How, I don't know how how effective that is, or when it will happen, or when it will stop. I don't know. We don't know because I don't see I don't see much Parliament at TV, on TV at the moment, so we don't know what's happening. So all the, the police and all the arms of the state have got extra judicial powers to do extra stuff. Even people in where is it Bedford and Berkshire are getting harassed by the police. That never happens, does it? It's not Brixton. Not in terms of your analysis of what's happening Yusuf and I mean we've spoken about this before we spoke about it yesterday but like I can't spend too much time thinking about 
how vulnerable some groups are now even on the same road as me because I'll literally just like sit in a corner and cry because it's just so peak what is happening right now in general but thinking of those that are marginalized and vulnerable in quote-unquote non-covid-19 ridden society like what are you thinking in terms of both sociologically and your own analysis of what's happening right now and those particular groups I think that people that were vulnerable before are obviously vulnerable now. I think that I tweeted about it, but I didn't really follow up on it. So that it, the reason I said that tweet was because I'd, I'd gone shopping it and I noticed there was a lot of young men like just in the street. And I felt like kind of my sociological inclination, I could be wrong in it, do you know what I mean? They might have been trapping us, and I don't know what they were doing. But like my sense is that there's a lot of young men or young people or people of all ages really now that don't have like permanent and secure housing. They might be staying with like a family member, they might be staying with a friend. All these different kind of situations that mean that that leave people a bit vulnerable because maybe, yeah, you can stay with someone for a few weeks and this and that, but then when lockdown comes and you're supposed to be in the house near enough 24 hours a day, like that becomes a much more complicated situation, isn't it? And whether or not those people are going to feel comfortable being in those spaces. There's lots of others. This is one scenario, isn't it? But there's lots and lots of scenarios that I think particularly people that have mental health problems, people that are in very precarious living circumstances. Like, I've noticed that those groups, I mean, it's hard to say for sure, because you don't know unless you go and speak to everyone about what their living situation is. But I think that our groups of people that we know have more precarious living situations, and I think those have kind of been brought to the forefront. And I don't really feel like they've really been covered in the crisis. There's a lot of stuff where people talk about NHS workers, and that's important. And there's a lot of that stupid round of applause for people. That yeah, yeah, that was dead. That was dead. That was dead. That was dead. Yeah. Like, what's that? Like, people were clapping on my street. I was like, what's this? I didn't even know. Two, I didn't even know what two it was. situations. Two situations over the past seven days have got me pacing around the house. Number one, the NHS applause, and number two, Boris Johnson <laughs> saying maybe there is such thing as society, which I think was his way of a little wink at all the sociologists to troll us, basically. I think anyone who's got a memory of the 80s or who's involved in politics kind of understood what he was talking about and where they're going. So they're shifting away from the neoliberal agenda and I don't know what what they're moving to, but that marked the end of it, right? So Margaret Thatcher, the zenith of of neoliberalism, there is no such thing in society. It's all about the individual. So we follow that through works of like Imogen Tyler, Goffman, about stigmatization of the poor, marginalization of black people, women. We know the story, we know the script. This crisis has shown it's not working. So Boris Johnson said, it's the biggest handout the government's ever did. No, No more minimal state. The state's involved in everyone's life now. I'm giving money out like it's nothing. If you need money, come and see me. That's the kind of thing. But told, like two weeks ago, at the budget, that wasn't what they were saying, were they? But now exactly. it is. Right? And actually, like following on from that, he's listening to Danny Dorlin on Radio 4 earlier this week. And he was saying what is dangerous about right wing and arguably far right wing people doing leftist or socialist type policies that, hand out more money to everyone can actually be dangerous ideologically because they have to find a way to be close to their 
original conservative base still mm. and if they can't be close to it through social policy then they'll be close to it through ideology and we know that right-wing ideology or far-right neoconservative ideology is racist transphobic sexist so actually if they're going to be more aligned with the left on social policy practice they need to find a way to detach themselves from the left yeah and they can do that through nation and racism <laughs> and other other isms basically which we know make life much harder for those on the margins but what i was i was kind of thinking in in terms of epochs right so the in last time in terms of like Mo big defining moments, right? Big epochs, right? So the last time, like in 1991, when communism collapsed, we had a kind of triumphalism of the West, right? So neoliberalism had won, communism was gone, fascism was gone, the, the free market reigned, right? So this crisis now, we've had 2008 financial crisis, this crisis now, communism, we tried communism, we tried fascism, neoliberalism and a minimal state hasn't worked because now the state's non-existent and we need to kind of help people and we can't. So what comes next? What comes next for the West? Like, what theory do we have to kind of fix this? I'm not convinced that they're not going to go back. One of the things I'm worried about is what are they going to be the, the measures that are going to be made in, in order to enable us to recover? Because right now, they're not in a situation where they can't do well, interventionist policy. They're not, like, and even then, a lot of the kinds of interventions they were making were quite slow, I felt, like in relation to the... the crisis that's emerging or emerge like do you know what I mean it was people were able to work and what are you going to do about it and what about people in these precarious jobs that you've been for the last 35 40 years you've been like creating the kind of economic or social environment for these jobs to exist do you know what I mean these kind of very like uber and I've heard some awful stories about ASOS ASOS Forcing, like, yeah, we're not going okay. from ASOS right now to ambulance, <laughs> ambulance is being called to ASOS, them not doing social distancing and um, physical distancing and good enough time. Yeah, it's shocking. I, I, don't, I don't think people are prepared for what's to come, right? Because uh, given how pandemics work and how they've worked in the past, so for example, Spanish influenza last time came three distinct waves, right? Over 18 months. Now, at the moment, Africa's having a large, a big problem in dealing with this, right? So if you look at oil prices, oil prices are bottoming out, right? So that's causing a problem for everyone. So there's too much supply and not enough demand. And that costs money to hold it. So there's a, there's a, a big knock-on effect that's coming. So what you're going to see is high unemployment. And high unemployment is a big marker of a depression. Now, a, a depression, like I said, last time it took 10 years to work out of that. Now, it could take us 18 months to get out of this, but from what people are saying, the stimulus, the stimulus packages from the West and the kind of support Africa needs, because Africa's a big part of this global global economy, is not enough to get everyone out of this trouble. And plus, Africa can't do the social distancing, uh, take the measures that the West have, because they have high rates of tuberculosis in some countries, in Ghana, in Nigeria. A lot of people rely on an informal economy, so they can't not work, right? But in Zimbabwe, there's a zero tolerance on a lockdown. So these people are starving. So now you're going to see the, how interconnected we are. So there's there's a question around just like the idea of the, the business models that we have just in time supply chains all this needs to be questioned now because it's so interlinked that if one falls we all fall so we have to understand how free market economics really works so we even need to readjust readjust capitalism or try something else i don't know what it is but these are big questions that we need to think about because i'm not convinced that they're going to be prepared to do it 
Like, I'm not convinced that they're going to be prepared. Like, someone like Trump in the White House or Boris, who he's complete, like, his disposition is completely, like, oriented towards free market. How can I promote my, not necessarily my beverages, making a lot of, how do I incentivize, basically because it's, like, incentivizing free market capital to, to land in where you are, in it? No, and I can't see, I can't really see how they're going to... What I would agree with you, because when Trump... Trump made a, he made a statement the other day, right? He said, we're in a position to sell ventilators, right? We don't need them, but we can sell them because I don't want I don't want the state to become involved in private business because that's like, he, he used uh, the example of, of Venezuela. He said, we're going to become communists, basically. So he's basically a classic free marketist and he's a nationalist, right? But that model is being tested right now. Yeah, so... Yeah, yeah. Gordon Brown was saying that. Gordon Brown said there's been too much Britain first, America first, Pakistan first, India first, when really we're so interconnected that this this existential threat that's coming for everyone, rich or poor, it's irrelevant now. We need a global socialist agenda. Well, no, what happened was, remember the last time we had a massive crisis, we did that, we invaded the World Bank, the UN, World Health Organization, the, the EU, all these things came out after World War II, right? But have they been effective? In the last 50 or 60 years, some of them have proved ineffective. So we, like I said, so we need to start thinking, what are we actually going to do? Because we've tried a lot of shit and it's gone wrong. They've been effective at pushing the ideology, like free market ideology in it. So particularly World Bank, IMF, those kind of organizations. Mm. Drivers, particularly in like, the developing world, they've been organizations mm. that have been pushing very hard in the developing yeah, world, like, those ideologies to take a hold, innit? it? Yeah. You know what I mean? So, in, in the sense of, like, pushing the capacity of the free market or pushing, like, the reach of particularly, like, US interests in the free market, they have been effective, innit? it? I mean, they've I been... Think, I think they've been effective, effective for us making us, us rich, right? But we've what you've seen now is the weakness of weakness of our systems, right? So, the idea of something happening to us, look at it, look at it, made everyone panic and go by loo roll, right? Yeah. Now, given given that social distance, like social distancing here, is not a problem, right? Yeah. But imagine you live somewhere else in the world, and we're we're so spoiled and so soft. We thought these kind of things don't affect us, right? So Europe, there's the idea of European exceptionalism. So we don't think that these things will come for us. So now they are here. We're not prepared. So we either need to spend more money on the state. The state needs to get bigger to offer more people stuff and help more people, because a non-existent state. Yeah. It's, it's a struggle for people, right? It's a struggle for us, struggle for rich people. There's there's some some things in that as well around the failures of private suppliers because I think that the imaginary that probably would be coming from the US and the thing that I'd be most frightened of is, is the growth of inverted commas state services being provided by private sector organizations, Carillion, InterServe, people like that. But I think they failed so consistently and so repeatedly, yeah. like. I wonder whether that would be a thing that they'd continue to explore, like PFI and all them kind of kind of things in relation to like the. Because the, I think that from the fallout of this, you're right. They're going to need to invest more in state infrastructure and services. Yeah. Like right mm. now, aren't they in control of the railways at the moment? They're doing the railways, but like following like the work of Wakant and all that. Tiso. Sorry. In the work of who? What's he? I can't. I can't. What's he? What's his first name? Tell us about I, I, well, he's a, he's a, he's a ethnographer. Yes, I, I don't, I don't know. I just read his, I just read his work. I don't know what he's. He's like a meta theorist now. Like he's the one. Yeah. That, 
Anyway, I was looking at his work. So the stuff on the state, right? He kind of looks at the state has spent more money on prisons and the penal system. So that's that's grown. The state's been active in that area, but let welfare provision die, basically. So the state is effective at doing certain stuff when it wants to do stuff. But the provision of social welfare has not been high in the agenda, especially in the UK. So you've seen council flats who, in, at the start of 1945, were seen as the gold standard, somewhere, be to, somewhere to be proud to live. Now, you're lucky to get one. Like, to get one, it's like a lottery, right? Yeah. It should never be like that. Well, I think I we have to end the reflection there, guys. Boom. For this week. Yusuf, thank you so much for joining us. I have you, We hope you're all keeping safe, looking after yourselves, looking after your bodies, looking after Ooh. your mental health. I'm I'm jogging, running every day. Yeah, I'm running as well. Um, but if you can't run, do exercises with your arms, do exercise with your legs. There's lots of different things you can do, but try if you can to get some structure in this current moment. Listen, peace. We're gone.